So welcome to another episode of The Shredder Show. An absolute pleasure today to have Craig Weller, who is a motivational speaker, a master coach with Precision Nutrition, and uh, formerly of the US Navy. So thank you very much for coming on to the podcast and really, really appreciate your time. And today we're going to delve into uh, all things motivation, uh, which I know is something that you're a master of inspiring people all over the world with. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so give us a, if you were to give us a brief like 60 second synopsis of who you are, Craig, for anyone who's not, not aware in your background. Um, yeah, so my, my background primarily is in special operations in the military. Uh, I grew up in a tiny town in South Dakota. And so for people in London, like flatland, prairies, cows and trees, no people. Um, and where I grew up, there was no swimming pool. Like you just, we had a tiny little like splashy pool, but you didn't actually like swim laps in it. So I didn't learn to swim when I was a kid and I joined the Navy and volunteered for a special operations unit and I didn't know how to swim. <laughs> uh, and so I learned by taking the screen test in for special operations, which is like the minimal physical standards that you have to pass in order to start the pipeline. And I would take the test, fail it almost immediately uh, in the pool. I'd get drug out of the pool after like two out of 10 laps, but I'd fail early enough that they would just send me to stroke development where I'd learn to swim. So, so I learned to swim by taking the test and failing it a few times. And then I eventually passed on my last try by about seven seconds. Um, and then from there, because this was always my Achilles heel, I spent two and a half years total going through the pipeline to finally graduate uh, special operations school. Uh, and that was because I was still terrible at swimming and never really caught up to the power curve for a long time. So I was for the, in the first case, two weeks from graduating my selection course and I failed to swim by a minute and two seconds and I double failed it. I failed it again the next time. And so we got rolled out and I had to spend four months in a, a development program um, for BUDS, which is SEAL training. And I was a SWIC student. I was going through a program for SWIC, which is a small boat unit and a different special operations unit. But they rolled us into BUDS uh, because they were trying an experiment. And it was the first place in, at that point, a year and a half that I'd had um, performance coaching, that someone didn't just tell me to try harder. And the first time the, the coach there watched me in the pool, watched me swim, he first blamed it on my parents for not raising me in California where there was water. And then gave me like 10 specific things to do, like bend your arm like this, roll your torso like this, position your head like this. And he gave me immediate feedback on that as I was swimming, as I was training. So he'd tap me on the shoulder at the edge of the pool and tell me what I was doing wrong and how to do it better. So I had a mental model and a feedback loop. And in two months, I improved more than I had in the previous year and a half. And I spent four months there, went back to SWIC school and passed the selection course then. But while I was doing that, I was always um, struggling, always suffering. Like a lot of the workouts, I could barely stay conscious. Um, I actually blacked out in the water a couple of times. Um, hypoglycemic shock from just running out of blood sugar, that kind of thing. Like I was always just at my limits. And while I was going through, like my first class started with 50 people and graduated 13. And that was the one I got rolled out of. I was number 14. And then my next one went from 90 something to 30. Um, so I was watching because I was there so long, I was watching literally thousands of people go through these pipelines and most of them fail or quit. And nearly all of them, with the exception of one guy that I remember, nearly all of them were better at swimming and better physically than I was. Um, you know, they could pass the performance standards uh, more easily. They came from, in some cases, like division one university athlete backgrounds. They were 
guys who had been competitive water polo players, triathletes, whatever, and I watched all of them quit. Um, so I became really fascinated with what it was that helped people persevere under really difficult circumstances, like a special ops selection course, uh, especially because it's not just physical. Like you need to meet the physical standards, but if that's the only thing you have, then it's not going to be enough either. Uh, and there's this strong mental or emotional component to resilience. So I, I spent a lot of time researching that and, and seeing it applied in, in real time in this sort of accelerated learning lab of watching people struggle and fail and quit and occasionally succeed. And I started to piece out what the, what the factors are that contribute to that. And eventually I started coaching it. And, and now that's one of the primary things I do is train people. And, and a lot of it's based on what, what I learned there from practical experience and from academic mentors who are giving me the legitimate research that underpinned what I was seeing. I'm interested. That must be fascinating seeing that volume of people going through that process. And I guess you could see everyone's almost breaking point. Did, was there really like a pivoting moment for you when you suddenly realized like you're not necessarily genetically gifted, but you had the mindset to overcome obstacles where others maybe had the, the genetic tools, but they didn't have the thought process to see it through? Yeah, I remember there was a guy, because I was in the pipeline forever, there was this guy that I was with, with in training for a long time. Um, and he was a bud student. I was a swig student, but when I was crossed over as as a brown shirt in the buds program, I was um, helping facilitate a hell week. Um, and the guy was maybe two days into hell week, and he was always physically gifted, really strong, and he was smiling when he walked by me and quit. He just he he wasn't even that uncomfortable. He just he was done. Um, and, I, and I saw that a lot, not just there, but in the SWIC program and in the, the pipeline that I was in before, where it wasn't that people, that people physically broke. Because um, it's actually really, really hard to break a body if you're just running as fast as you possibly can until you black out or something like that. It's super hard to do. Um, and, and the limitation there, the factor that makes it even possible is a mental thing. That's part of what they're looking for. Like, if you were to try just going on a treadmill and running as fast as you could until you shut your body down, like outside of a tissue injury from running really badly. Um, it's nearly impossible. Um, you, you just, it's, it's super hard to do. And so it wasn't that people were physically breaking. It was that something got them mentally or emotionally. And after hitting bottom so many times myself, um, I finally realized that I had a sense of freedom in that, no matter how bad it was, I was still going to be there. Like, unless they made me leave, I wasn't going to quit and they weren't going to be able to break me that way. Um, and that's where I started to see the mental differences. And the same with, there were a lot of other students in the pipeline. Um, one guy who was also, he was the buds guy who became a SEAL, who never did more than six or seven pull-ups the entire time. His upper body strength was terrible. And I remember him like trying to work on it in his off time. Uh, he and I would go work out on the weekends or after work or whatever, try to make it better. And he just never really got that strong, but he always cleared the minimum standards. And there were guys who could do 30 pull-ups who quit anyway. And there's another guy, um, He uh, he's actually in the movie American Sniper. They changed his name to Biggles for some reason, but I was uh, in training with him he called himself the fattest kid to ever go through buds. And he, um, 
he wasn't fat by normal standards. He was maybe a little chubby, but but when you're running 15 miles a day, that's that's a big deal. And he struggled with the run times. Uh, he was in the, the rollback program that I was in where I'd failed to swim. He had failed the run times and buds. And we got him to eventually pass the run times by running like this flying V formation around him on the beach to block wind. And then we'd cycle guys through one at a time and put our hand in his lower back and push him <laughs> down the beach to get him to squeak under the run time so he could class back up and, and finish and, and pass all of his run times. He was amazingly fast in the water. He could take a beating for days. He just wasn't good at running, but he struggled every day. He was out there doing the work. and you know, there's so many other guys who were phenomenal athletes who didn't struggle nearly as much with any of that stuff and they'd go away. And, and guys like, guys like this guy just never stopped and they never, they never gave in. So it, it's something that's really repeated a lot that you see constantly that the physical side of it is really just a way of assessing what's in your head and, and what you have mentally or emotionally and your ability to regulate yourself through distress or through struggle. 100%. And it's one of those things I think a lot of people rely too much maybe on like um, external factors for motivation where, where they really realistically need to look internally to try and motivate themselves rather than trying to look for something externally. Is that something that you saw in the military and you see now? Yeah, you do see that a lot. There's actually an interesting correlation between external signaling devices of toughness and people who are likely to quit. So if you saw a guy who was like, 19 years old 18 years old and just covered in tattoos like tough guy tattoos like i need to tell the world that this is who i am um for whatever reason that often correlated with them quitting fairly early because it was an external signal that that was usually a compensation for an insecurity um it was a band-aid that they put over their self-perception and it was a way that they projected something to the world that they didn't really believe in i guess um it's totally common once guys get through selection and they're at a team most of them are covered in tattoos but when they're 18 year old 19 year old students the ones that come in that that have a lot of tough guy signals um are often the most vulnerable is that something that you now see into the normal world when you go into like nutrition coaching and normal training that people still have almost like these scars from maybe where they're younger and you can see sort of patterns developing yeah yeah and the i mean the primary what do you call it the research term is internal versus external locus of control um and we see it a lot in people's narratives like in their the story they tell about themselves and about the world and um when people have an external locus of control it means that that what happens to them or the course of their life is dictated by things outside of themselves. Um, so there are people who, when they fail, they fail because of something else, um, because of this injury, because of this thing that happened to me and life kind of happens to them. And they're sort of a passive bystander where someone with an internal locus of control uh, owns the responsibility for their decisions and their actions and they see failure as something that they could have control over generally um, and they look for the things that they're responsible for that they can control and they look to take responsibility for those things and and improve them um, so 
when they miss a timed run, when they screw up their nutrition, when they make a mistake of some sort, they don't blame it on something outside of themselves. They look for the aspect of that that they could have controlled and that they could do better in the future. And they focus on that. Uh, where people with an externalized locus of control um, see themselves more as basically the victims of the world around them. And they find reasons outside of themselves that they've failed. And once they externalize the reason for their failure, then they no longer have control of it. And they've relegated control of their life to random chance. 100%. I think, is that something that with obviously the stresses of the world and the global pandemic that's going on at the moment, you see a lot more that people are playing the victim card now, that like it's very easy for people to maybe throw in the towel, say for example, with um, gyms being closed for a while and whatever it might be, there's different... Uh, challenges people have but people have got like it's very easy for people to use that as an excuse mm -hmm. yeah that's that's definitely a thing um and and it's i think it's important to put it in context as well that chronic stress i mean this is this situation is definitely going to impose an additional stress burden on people and chronic stress does alter your decision making it changes your ability to make decisions in the interest of your long-term goals rather than basing them off of immediate habitual reflexes. Um, so to some extent, everyone's playing the game right now on a hard level. You know, it's not, it's not easy to, to make good rational decisions to delay, Im to delay gratification or inhibit your impulses and, and keep a long-term perspective when, especially if you're someone who's been impacted by losing your job, or you at least have family members or friends who have lost their jobs, or you know, people who have died from, from the pandemic. Um, it's understandable that people have a hard time with it. But yes, you're right that there are a lot of people who haven't been terribly personally impacted, who are kind of right on the bubble between making decisions that are in the interest of their long-term goals and just falling back to old habits and comfort food and, you know, watching Netflix and eating ice cream basically. And, and it does become, I think, an easy excuse where people are able to externalize a reason for their uh, sort of lack of forward movement by saying it's because of the pandemic that I'm not working out, that I'm not trying to find anything, that I'm not adaptable. You know, like if, if people want to do something badly enough, clearly enough, they'll find a way. And if they don't, it's pretty easy to find an excuse. And there's, there's definitely an element of that where people don't have maybe immediate access to an amazing gym. So they don't work out at all. You know, they could be doing body weight stuff. They could improvise something. They could use whatever. And that was something we saw all the time in, in special operations. Like we never had real equipment for the most part if we were overseas, which is half the time. We had rocks and sandbags and logs and cement blocks and sometimes some Fred Flintstone weights. <laughs> but we always found a way to make, it, to make it happen because it was necessary, because it had to be done. And I think that's part of what we're seeing is this divide between people for whom being fit, being healthy, being sort of self-motivated is either optional a thing that can come and go or doesn't really matter and people for whom it's a job it's part of their identity it's who they are and they're going to find a way to make that happen uh and yeah it's it's been interesting to see that play out it's uh yeah it's been very fascinating to see how 
maybe some people rise to the challenge and some people just fall away and watch Netflix for five months. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you probably know what I mean. Um, like with this sort of situation, is there anything that you say to people to try and stay mo- motivated during these challenges times or any strategies they can try and put into place from a practical point of view? Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few. Um, and I think that that's important to, to have a real mental model or an explicit skill that can underpin a behavior because it's not enough to just tell someone to go try harder. Like people telling me to just try to swim harder when I was a student in selection, I just got, got better at doing something badly. Um, so you're not, when you say like, you know, be consistent, um, exercise regularly, any habit that you're trying to, to produce, like in selection, it would be just don't quit. Um, saying those words isn't enough. You have to understand the, the skills and behaviors that underpin that thing. So if someone's going to just not quit or if someone's going to consistently exercise every day or someone's going to eat better food on a regular basis, it's not enough to just tell them to do that. You have to identify the things that happen before that, the skills that underpin that. And, and so, yeah, with, with the people we were working with, ranging everywhere from, from you know, special forces guys to the, the regular people that we work with through PN, um, we, we use a range of skills. Um, one of them is using self-hurting. Um, we use the phrase quit tomorrow to identify that because um, that's, that's how we set it in selection. When we had a really bad day, we'd tell ourselves that we'd quit tomorrow. We just suffer through the day and then it'd all be over in the morning. And doing that um, takes advantage of a, a phenomenon called self-hurting, which is where you, you decide what you're going to do now based on the decision you made in the past under similar conditions. Um, and the idea there is that our choices or our decisions don't just re- reveal our preferences, they also shape them. So whether we struggle to do it or we force ourselves to do it or not, when we make a decision over and over, it eventually starts to become our preference to make that decision and it becomes easier over time. Um, so if you have someone who's say struggling to stick to a consistent exercise routine, um, they hate working out, they can use something like this, the quit tomorrow idea or the just get started thing where all you're going to do is maybe the warm up and you get through the warm up and you do a little bit more and you tell yourself that tomorrow, if you don't want to do this, you can just never touch a dumbbell again in your life. But today you're going to do this much. And by doing that, by making the decision to move forward in real time in that moment you're biasing your preferences and your impulsive or reflexive decision making in the future when that happens again when you're tired you don't feel like it you don't want to do it you you'll think back to what you did the last time you didn't feel like working out and you'll remember that you did it anyway and over time that becomes easier and easier. It starts to become who you are and your natural reflex rather than something that you have to override with tooth like teeth gritting willpower um and there are there are a lot of other little skills that can go into that there are things like segmenting um which we teach a lot of people which is where you break an event down into the smallest manageable pieces and you narrow your focus to just one of those pieces at a time so if you're trying to say you're trying to get through a workout again you only think about doing the warm up. Your entire world is just taking the steps necessary to do that warm up. 
And then maybe the only thing you think about is the first set of the first exercise. And you only think about that thing. You don't think about the next hour of doing this. And you don't think about what you're going to do for the next the rest of the week and how monotonous this is going to feel for the next 10 years, how endless it can be. You just think about the thing that's right in front of you and you do that thing. And when you win the hour, the day takes care of itself or you win the next five minutes, the hour takes care of itself. And if you narrow your focus down and just accomplish the thing that's right in front of you, um, you can make that thing small enough to feel easy and manageable. And that's all the world is ever really made of is tiny steps linked together one after another. Um, go ahead. hundred percent. I thought one thing I was going to ask you is, do you find this works so well? Because I like, I notice myself when I really don't want to do something, I literally like think I'd rather do a million other things and whatever that task is, be work training, whatever. Once you've done that task and you've ticked off the feel of accomplishment, is that what ingrains in your brain to then keep you going? So like next time you get into that same circumstance again, you almost remember like, yeah, this is crap. I don't want to do it. But once I've done it, it's done. And then like, I'll feel great afterwards. If that makes sense, like a sense of uh, achievement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely a factor. You begin to associate it with reward, with with positive feelings, and we all have a tendency to chase that. Um, so that's that's absolutely a component. Yeah. Um, there's there are quite a few other pieces to that. Um, we used to use the phrase a lot: "You don't have to like it; you just have to do it," which doesn't work for everybody. You don't want to do, like jump straight out and use that with a client most of the time. <laughs> um, but the idea is that you're putting your behavior before your feelings. And for whatever reason, in a lot of Western culture, we really value feelings <laughs> and, and we, we treat them as something that has to be uh, turned into our identity. Like how we feel is who we are. And it, it becomes something that we have to protect and, and sort of live by. And that's not really true. Your feelings can also just be like weather passing over. It's just something, you know, like you see that it's raining, so you wear a rain jacket and you go do what you're going to do anyway. Um, and, and when you start to see it the other way, where you put behavior first, um, then you start to to use that self-hurting effect or that thing where your your decisions shape your preferences and eventually your behavior starts to shape the way you feel. So we, we like to say that you can't feel your way into behaving differently. You know, you can't wait until you feel motivated or until you feel like eating broccoli instead of ice cream or until you feel like exercising instead of watching Netflix because you never really will. Like, motivation is this really fickle transient thing that only passes through once in a while and it at best gets you started but if you put the behavior first and you just do the thing regardless of what you feel like um, then it will over time start to shape your preferences and and change you um, and and that's been that's that's a really powerful one too but it it does sometimes require some other tools to to cross that gap like it's one thing to tell yourself to put the behavior first, but it's another thing to actually do it. And sometimes there are other skills or other factors that, um, that make that happen. One of the things I talk about a lot is the importance of like discipline. And that's the really what you want to be looking for is try and become disciplined because motivation is always going to wane and come and go. Whereas if you're disciplined, you just do it regardless. Um, which I think also comes with something you talk about. Like I talk about like, like what's your why, like why do you want to do 
something. Yeah. I know you talk about having like a deep reason. Um, mm. Do you want to go into that a little bit more? Like, Yeah. Yeah. And that's another one that was really universal with, with pretty much everyone who was successful. And it was something you could see early in the people who were not. Um, and it's, it's, sometimes it's difficult to get people to talk about it. They may not even consciously really know that they're doing it. Um, but for me, going through when I had my worst days, like I remember one where <laughs> I had had a terrible beat down in the pool and I, I blacked out briefly in the water a couple times. And when I, when it was over, my friends had to pull me out by the wrist because I didn't have enough energy to get myself out of the pool uh, under my own power. And I lived in the, in a barracks on the fifth floor at the time and there's no elevator. You had to walk up the stairs and I couldn't make it up the stairs like I'd, I'd make it up one flight and then I'd, I'd just kind of collapse on the floor and I'd sit there and breathe and drink water and think about my life for a bit. And then I have enough energy to make it up the next flight of stairs and I'd, I'd do that and I'd piecemeal. And I, it took me like 20 minutes. Um, and on days like that, the, the thing that I would think about was my dad's snow boots, which sounds really weird. But if we go back to the way I grew up in, in like small town, South Dakota, um, we had two cars two vehicles growing up and my mom was a paramedic who was always on call so she needed one and then we had one other and I had it was me and three siblings four kids and my my dad worked at an office that was about a mile away from the house and in the winter in South Dakota it's terrible a lot of snow really cold and a lot of wind and he would go to work before we started school um, usually we'd be like barely awake by the time he had left for work in the morning and he would walk to work and leave the other car for us kids so that we could have a warm, heated car to drive to school in. And he would trudge through the snow. And he did that by wearing these giant, like, knee-high snow boots that, that he wore to the office because he had to wear, like, grown-up shoes in the office. Um, and then he'd wear the same snow boots on the way back. And every day I'd come home from school and he'd come in from work at, like, 5 o'clock or whatever and he'd set those snow boots by the door and they'd sit there on this little tray and, and I, you'd watch the, you'd see the snow melting off of them in a little puddle. And so when I had my worst days in, in the SWIC pipeline, I would think about those snow boots and they were the reflection or the embodiment of 18 years of sacrifices that my parents had made for me so that I could have a future and be somebody. And when I thought of that, I couldn't tolerate the idea of calling my parents and telling them that I'd given up, that I'd quit because the water was too cold or the swim was too far. It was just too hard. Like it was unthinkable that they had sacrificed for 18 years for me. And then I was just like, nah, it was cold. I quit. <laughs> like I couldn't make that phone call. I would have rather they, they just took me to the hospital. Like I'd rather that they just beat me unconscious in the water or whatever. So that was always my fallback when I had a really bad moment to think about that really deep reason. And that's kind of the fail safe that, that people have that when they have nothing else left, that's what keeps them going. Uh, I had another friend who grew up on a cattle ranch. He became a Marine scout sniper. He was my best friend growing up in high school and his selection course is similarly terrible. And uh, he thought of his, we never talked about this until like, I think we were both out of the military, but he thought of, his dad had this uh, canvas Carhartt jacket. I don't know if they have these in, in Europe, but it's just like a work coat. And 
torn to pieces, probably held together with duct tape in a lot of spots, really worn out, stained, covered in weird things. And his dad would wear that jacket to go check calves at like two o'clock in the morning during calving season, because he, this is just a thing that you have to do. You go out in miserably cold weather and you make sure that the calves that are your family's lifeline are surviving, you know, that they're not having issues, that, that your financial wherewithal is not dying in a field somewhere. And his dad would wear that jacket every night to go check calves in the middle of the night while he and his brother slept uh, and his mom, you know. And, and when he had similar low moments in his pipeline, he would think of that. He would think of that jacket and, and all the work that his dad put in to make sure that he had a future to take care of him and his family. And that was a very universal thing. Um, I had a mentor who was a team leader from development group or SEAL Team 6. And, and when I was in this sort of student status in the pipeline, I asked him what his advice was for anyone going through. And he said that for him, it always came down to his family, that he could never fathom the idea of quitting and, and facing his family afterward. And, and so it's not always family. Sometimes there are other factors. Um, but, but everyone who was successful, for the most part, had something like that, had a really deep reason that, that kept them going when they hit bottom. And we'd see it with the people who didn't make it, where if you talk to them about why they were doing this, what they wanted out of this, they have very superficial reasoning. Um, it would be things like, I just wanted, I just wanted to look cool. I wanted to see what I was made of. I wanted to, you know, I want, I want to impress people, whatever. It wouldn't, it wouldn't really be that deep and it would be something that could easily go away when everything else is discouraging you. Uh, it, it just wasn't a strong enough reason. And those are the same people that, that quit pretty reliably when things got bad. I think it's interesting to see, cause you can see that across the board with a lot of people where, for example, they might start, um, a weight loss journey whatever and it's like they quit because again they haven't got a strong enough reason or why to do that um which i think is is fascinating to see um i know one of the other things you talk about a lot is like prioritizing systems over willpower because mm-hmm. it's almost like and i talk a lot of people like setting themselves up for success with just the way they like sort of schedule their day or their lifestyle just to make things easier and you have less um room for error or like roadblocks put in your way by yourself um do you have any tips in regards to that in terms of like maybe where you learned that from the military or like through your background at the moment yeah we uh at pn we call that shaping the path and and the idea is that rather than than forging ahead through a really difficult path you you do a little bit of work in advance and make make the desired outcome or the desired direction easier to follow um the the other phrase we have for that is to treat the system not the symptom so if you struggle getting out of bed in the morning um don't just promise yourself that you'll try harder um don't you know like willpower your way through it but do something that increases the probability of you just getting out of bed because that's the easier way to do it so for me uh in the early phase of of when i was a student in the special ops pipeline, I had to get out of bed at three o'clock in the morning to go do these terrible workouts. And I had roommates. I I lived with, I think, three or four people total. And I was on a top bunk. And so I I solved this problem of getting out of bed exactly at 3 a.m. 
uh, and it was necessary that, that I didn't hit the snooze alarm because it was all on a very tight timeline. Like I wanted to get as much sleep as I possibly could. And I had to be checked in, standing in a line, ready to go, um, warmed up at 345 on the other side of base. It was quite a long walk to get there. And I had, I'd leave the door at 314. Like I had it timed down to the minute. I I brushed my teeth, put contacts in. I didn't get eye surgery for quite a while. So I wore contacts and, and I leave the door at 314. I'd meet a friend of mine under a stop or a streetlight at, I think 319. And, and we'd walk from there. Like everything was really precisely timed. So hitting a snooze alarm for five minutes would ruin the entire day because I'd, I'd miss all those timelines. My friend would either wait for me and be late himself or he'd leave without me. I might miss getting in line, getting in ranks, getting checked in. And if I was, if I missed more than I think three workouts ever, I would have gotten dropped from the program. So to solve this problem and make sure that I got out of bed in time, I didn't just willpower it or make promises to myself. I just put my alarm clock on the other side of the room. So I had to literally jump out of bed off the top bunk onto the floor and dash across the room and kill my alarm clock as fast as I could because I had roommates who were normal, who were in like just a regular Navy job, not a special operations job. And they didn't have to wake up until like seven o'clock. So I wasn't, I didn't want to cost them four hours of sleep. So I'd get across the room as fast as I could and get my alarm clock off. And once I'd done that, the the distance it would take to walk back across the room and physically climb back into my bed, hit the snooze alarm, like it was just really impractical. So that was enough that it never happened. Um, and it had nothing to do with willpower. I just ch shaped the path a little bit. Um, and there are a lot of devices and things around now that are really helpful for doing that. Like I, I saw one yesterday, I actually bought it. Um, you can get these little things that you put in your kitchen, these lock boxes with timers on them. And there's no way, once you set the timer, there's no way to open them. There's no, there's no like bypass. And they were originally designed for things like cookies. Like you tell your kids they can't have cookies until after dinner or for two hours or it's for yourself if you want to lock some kind of snacks away or people lock their credit cards in them so that if they want to buy something, they, they have to wait themselves out. Um, but what I'm going to use it for is to put my cell phone in during the day when I'm trying to work and it keeps me from, from goofing off of my phone. Yeah. So I'll lock it in for like, say a three, four hour work block and I can't touch it. And once it's locked in there and it's definitely off, there's, there's nothing I can do. And then I'm mentally clear. But when you have that constant pull, that constant struggle of like, ah, I want the cookie. I want the cookie. Like it's, it's really distracting and it, it eats up a lot of energy and mental attention and, and willpower. Um, and the same thing works with like, I mean, you work with a lot of nutrition people and, and that's what we do at PN too. Um, we really try to adjust the system so that people don't have to rely on incredible willpower from day to day and moment to moment to get something done. So if you struggle with eating junk food, if you eat chips or ice cream or whatever, uh, on a regular basis and it's sabotaging the person you're trying to be, just get that stuff out of your house, throw it away, um, give it away, whatever, eat it all at once and be done with it forever or at least for a couple of weeks and, and do those things. And, and it's interesting actually the mental resistance that people will have to doing that because a lot of people like to have these trip wires in front of them. Uh, you know, they, they'll say, I want to leave the ice cream in my fridge because I want to, improve my willpower or whatever. Um, and it's a terrible plan. It's like trying to see how well you can resist getting melanoma by sitting in the sun. Like it's just not a good idea. 
but but some people will have a really hard time just accepting the consequence of a decision and and they'll even preemptively do that by by being resistant to something like cleaning the junk food out of their kitchen and and what they're doing is trying to keep tripwires on the path in front of them so that they have an excuse or a reason to fail and that's really common and and when it happens then you have to address that ambiguity in that moment you know like find the reasons why you want to have ice cream in your house find the reasons why that serves a purpose for you like is it a form of self-soothing or self-regulation is it a stress relief is it part of a ritual and if you can identify the purpose that it serves then you can probably replace it with something else that can serve that purpose without also taking you away from the goals that you have 100 percent. i think it's almost people intentionally set themselves up for self-sabotage but they almost want to leave it in front of themselves as an excuse in a weird 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 way mm -hmm. yeah it's it's the same ambiguity i think that we all feel you know like if if we were 100 percent committed to an idea of working out every morning at 6 a.m or always eating broccoli instead of ice cream or whatever then we wouldn't struggle with it it wouldn't even be something that we would think about it would just be the way it would be our normal but we we are somewhat rational creatures and we always have a reason for the behaviors that we that we have um you know the the trade-off that we're making from getting out of bed at six in the morning to go do an uncomfortable workout is is obvious like it is really nice to just sleep in and stay in bed and not be uncomfortable but i think one of the things that we forget is that there is a big divide between comfort and happiness and we can't directly pursue happiness in the same way you can't just directly pursue things like just don't quit uh, you have to address the things that happen before that the things that, that allow that behavior to emerge um, so happiness isn't isn't a choice you make it's an outcome based on a series of behaviors um, and generally when we try to reach for happiness what we're actually doing is reaching for comfort and, and we forget the difference, but we're trading the two. Um, people are rarely very happy at the same time that they're very comfortable. Like if you look back in your life at the, the things that were most meaningful to you, those were probably not times when you were also simultaneously extremely comfortable. They're probably things that you struggled for, that you suffered for, and that felt really, really good when you accomplished them um like parenting for example i don't have kids but my most of my family does and and in the research on happiness and parenting the act of taking care of a child usually rates about the same on subjective enjoyment as vacuum cleaning um people people who are our parents moment to moment are typically less happy it leads more to frustration than it does to immediate happiness but if you survey people on long-term fulfillment or, or a deep sense of meaning or, or the, the deeper joys that we have in life, people with kids are almost universally more fulfilled and have more meaning in their lives than people without. And, and it's a thing of trading comfort, of, of trading, trading moment to moment ease and and comfort for for deeper meaning and happiness um, i'm kind of muddling those words a bit but if you think of say someone who's 
doing a really difficult workout in the gym, in that moment, they're not happy. They're not, you know, they're not comfortable. They're not relaxed. They're, they're doing something that's, that's taking them away from their equilibrium. They're breaking themselves a little bit in order to create an adaptation. But in the end, the person who consistently does that uncomfortable thing probably feels a lot better about their life. And even immediately after a workout, the way you feel for the rest of the day is typically a lot better. So it's this sort of indirect paradox. In research, it's called obliquity, where the indirect approach to a goal is often the most reliable way to accomplish it. So if you're trying to become happy, you should also look for ways where you can become productively uncomfortable. Um, and, and that sounds really weird, but that's just kind of the way our, our brains are wired. Um, the same thing happens in business where businesses that set out and their sole purpose is to make money, like Enron would be an example, um, typically fail. But when businesses start out with an objective or a goal that is outside of making money, like say Zappos had an objective of delivering the best possible customer experience. Um, Bill Gates wasn't trying to become rich. He was trying to make computers because that's what he really wanted to do. He wanted to make the best personal computers in the world. And he became rich. He became wealthy. But when people directly pursue that goal, um, they often fall short. So there, there are a lot of things that, that work best by considering sort of the indirect nature of how our minds work and how the world works in general, that there are a lot of things that we can't really directly pursue. And instead we have to identify the things that come first and, and look at those skills and, and do those things. It's one of those things I, I said to you was you can't have the, uh, the light of the day without the darkness of night, Like you have to, it's like the yin and yeah. you can't like have, yeah. you have to have the bad times, have the good times as well. Yeah. I was talking to my, my scout sniper friend about that, how we've probably felt, a deeper appreciation for a sunrise than almost anyone else in at least the developed world. Because if you've been super hypothermic, like teeth chattering, bone chilling cold all night in the dark, usually soaking wet, and then you see the sun poke over the horizon and it starts to warm you up and dry your clothes out, it's the best feeling. And you would never know that or appreciate that if you were always comfortable. And, and yeah, that's a, that's a really good point that, that without those low moments, we also become numb to the high points. Like we lose our ability to appreciate a sunrise or to appreciate good food or to appreciate physical comfort. You know, like sometimes it's nice to just relax on a couch and, and drink a beer. But if that's the only thing you do, then you become numb to it and you no longer appreciate it. It just becomes your normal. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's something there about producing or driving that contrast in your life, like deliberately seeking productive discomfort in order to enhance the happiness or the meaning that you feel in other parts of your life. And the needle will swing both ways. And if you just live in the middle, you know, like mostly comfortable, but also bored out of your mind, then you're you're not going to ever really appreciate or, or have a deep sense of meaning or fulfillment in your life. Out of interest, I know you spoke briefly about segmenting things earlier. Like one of the things that I try to do personally is segment all the crap stuff I don't want to do into like one day or into a few hours. So that almost like that's my like negative period of stuff that I know I have to do, but I don't want to deal with. And then mm-hmm. like everything else seems positive after that. So almost like try and have like an on off switch of the two, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 That's it. 
there's a few different techniques for that and it's a little bit individually variable you know like what works for you you'll have to experiment a bit there's a thing called the premac principle where people will stack something undesirable something they don't want to do like clearing your email inbox or whatever and then immediately follow it with something rewarding um whatever that is like going to eat lunch going for a walk eating ice cream whatever and and over time if you if you do that then you start you're basically training yourself like a pavlovian dog you you start to associate doing that unpleasant or undesirable thing with the reward and and you start to to feel more driven to do that thing that was undesirable uh, and I do something similar. I'll, I'll stack a lot of uncomfortable or, or undesirable things into like one block on my calendar just to get them all done at once. Um, and I feel like that gives me sometimes better mental clarity. Uh, but it, it also depends on the day. Usually what I try to do is do the worst part first, like the one thing that's mentally preoccupying that you just dread the whole day and just do that thing and get started on it and clear that away. And then everything else kind of, rolls downhill from there everything else feels easier but there's also there's often like this mental resistance to doing something where um it's not actually that difficult once you get started it's just the idea of it the prospect of it that puts us off um like working out can be that way for a lot of people where once you're 10 minutes into the workout you kind of just you stay on the treadmill and you just keep going but the process of driving to the gym, walking through the door, putting your stuff on, all of that, the setup is is worse than the actual act itself. 100%. To start sort of wrap, wrap things up a bit, Craig, what would you say for one final piece of wisdom, if you were going to give people one piece of critical advice to help them get started? Because I think that's where most people fail when it comes to fat loss or their own health and fitness. What would your advice be for that, for people who are sort of sitting on the fence for it are afraid to maybe reach out to someone like yourself at PN or, or me or whoever it might be? Uh, well, that in itself is, a, is, I think, a good place to start, to, to look for help and look for coaching. Um, don't bumble your way through like learning story. by trial and error. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> find an expert. Yeah, don't, don't just assume that you'll be able to figure it out. Like other people have suffered and struggled and learned these things the hard way. And most of them have books or courses or coaching programs that you can do and go do that. Like don't, don't just do it all the hard way. Go, go find the knowledge and just apply it immediately. And, and you'll make such so much faster progress that way. Um, I think the other one is to, to remember the distinction between your feelings and your behavior that, it's easy to think that if you're sad or tired or discouraged that you should do sad, tired and discouraged things, but that doesn't have to be the case. Um, you can, you can put the behavior first, despite the way that you feel in that moment. Um, and over time that becomes easier and easier. Um, just remember that, you know, happiness and comfort rarely exist at the same time and that you have to trade them. So it's uh, like a seesaw. Yeah, yeah. Um, if anyone wants to find out a little bit more information about you, Craig, or get in touch or, or anything else from you at Precision Nutrition, where's the best place to reach out to you? Uh, most of my writing and my work is through precisionnutrition.com. Um, yeah. I, I do some coaching through them, and I write a lot of their curriculum stuff now. Or I help write the curriculum. Um, I've also 
recently published a book along with Jonathan Pope, who's another precision nutrition coach on training special operators. Um, it's called Building the Elite. And it's a very comprehensive book. It took us seven years to write. It's basically a 400-page textbook. And we walk through a lot of the same stuff that we just discussed for the last hour or so on mental skill development and resilience and performance under stress and, and how those things work. Um, so that's buildingtheelite.com. Um, I recommend that. And otherwise, Precision Nutrition, um, that's where we run our coaching. That's where all the articles live. And that's where you'll find the most resources and, and useful things. So pn.com or that book is Building the Elite. Awesome. Awesome. Pleasure. And thank you so much for your time today, Craig. And uh, I'm sure it'll be incredibly valuable for everyone to listen. So anyone who found this fascinating, which I'm sure you did, is I found it incredibly motivating. Please uh, tag me on Instagram, post us your stories. I'm going to pick one person this week to win a free coaching call with myself. Uh, so look forward to seeing who enters that competition. And again, thank you so much, Craig. Yeah, thank you.